friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode... I don't know. What number is it? I didn't even look it up, and you know what? I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But I do know the title. It is entitled Art Without an Audience. Um... Welcome. It's been a minute. And you know what? I needed every minute. It was a really nice break. Um, I'm starting to feel called at the moment to record the podcast when, not just when I can, but when I have something to say. (laughs) And I think that's going to be a good rhythm for right now. I'm still going to be having guests. In fact, I have some in the queue and and some getting recorded as we speak. So that'll be also very exciting. Um, I want to tell you a story today that I've been thinking a lot about because I'm recording this in West Texas, which is, for those of you in Austin, you're probably relatively familiar. Um, For those of you listening from outside of Austin, West Texas is in many ways a totally different planet. <laughs> and I it is one of if not the most of favorite place I've ever been. Um in my 40 years on this earth. And I come often. I came 5 times last year, which is is kind of a big deal. Um Texas is a big state. It takes about six to seven hours to get out here from Austin. And so um, making the trip that many times a year um, when I'm working full time is it's a commitment. But I try to make it happen because this place is so special. Um, And the thing that's really special about it for me is that not everyone loves it. In fact, a lot of people don't love it. Um, I've met a lot of people who came once and will never come again. And I think that's part of the reason, maybe not all of the reason, but that's part of the reason why there's just not many people out here um, at all. Brewster County is the county where Big Bend National Park is. It's, you know, a gigantic normal-sized Texas county. It has four small towns and a total of 9,000 people in the entire county. It is quiet. It is empty. If you break down in the middle of nowhere, you're chilling. <laughs> like it's it's true wilderness, true wilderness and in a way that you don't really get to experience other places. I've talked about West Texas in um past episodes of this podcast, so I'm not going to go into it as much this time, but I wanted to give a little bit of context because it spurred me to tell this story today. I've been thinking about it for a while and it felt like it was an important time to talk about it because I know that a lot of you listening probably are going to relate to some of the themes today. And I don't, I feel like more than ever, (laughs) These themes are really pressing in the forefront of my consciousness, trying to get my attention, trying to get me to engage with them. And so, yeah, here we go. (laughs) So the the story starts with an experience I had a few years ago that that I've talked about in, in a past episode of this podcast, and I don't recall which one anymore, but it was 
Um, a few years back when I first drove into Big Bend National Park, um, for like the very first time and I didn't have a, actually, you know what? No, it was the second time. And I remember intentionally because it was the second time I decided not to hike. It was winter. It was February, pretty close to when I'm, you know, recording this now. Um, West Texas is beautiful during the day and it's freezing at night. Like last night got down to 25 degrees, but um, tomorrow it's going to be 80 during the day. So really beautiful time to come. Um, but I decided on a, on a colder day to go into the park and not hike. And I just bundled up and brought my drying supplies. And I pulled off one of the main highways in the park to this really pretty scenic overlook. And, you know, even being on one of the main highways in Big Bend is like, the loosest sense of the term highway y'all I sat there for two hours and maybe five cars drove by and you know it was great it's so quiet it's so peaceful um and the the overlook was um just a huge swath of desert lots of cactus and desert plants and then framed in the in the distance was the Chisos Mountains which are a huge focal point of the park. I think, I mean, the park is humongous. The Chisos are just a small fraction of what you can see there. Um, but they're beautiful. And I spent, you know, two to three hours that day sitting in the back of my car. I just opened the hatchback of my HRV and sat in it um, and drew. And it was, it was wonderful. And I've told this story before, but the reason I'll, I'll remember this, among other reasons, <laughs> is that I had an experience during this time that inspired the Desert Goddess series, which has to this point been my best-selling art series um, so far. It's in the web store at BeccaJBurley.com if you want to check it out. It's a series of five illustrations that I did while in the park. Um, and the idea was, what would the park, what would the desert be like personified as a woman? And this idea kind of happened this particular day because I was drawing uh, the foreground of this illustration. And actually, the illustration that I'm talking about is the Fire Goddess print, which is in the Desert Goddess series. Um, uh, parts of that illustration are absolutely real and parts, of course, are, you know, um, abstracted for my imagination. But I was drawing this prickly pear in the foreground right in the bottom left corner. You can see it. It's a very unassuming, sweet little prickly pear in the illustration. But in real life, um, you know, it was in real life I was looking at this thing and I spent a decent amount of time staring at it. And it was about 10 to 15 minutes into drawing this cactus that I had an experience that I've never really had before. And that was this very clear and unmistakable sense that the prickly pear knew not only that I was drawing it, but that I was reproducing its likeness. <laughs> you know, it was bizarre and cool and all the things, you know, and it wasn't an inkling or a hunch. It was like, oh, this is happening. Like this prickly pear and I are having a communion right now. And the thing that, that came right after this realization was 
some some guilt. It was weird. And and then sub and subsequently I, I questioned my guilt in my head. Why am I having guilt over this realization that this prickly pear is cognizant of me, that it is conscious of me. And not only just conscious of me as a person staring at it, but conscious of me as a person reproducing its image. And the story that I wanted to tell you in this podcast episode today immediately popped up into my mind for the first time in, I mean, 30 30 years, I guess you could say. Um, I hadn't thought about it in that long. And I knew the minute that it came into the forefront of my consciousness that it was a message. And I don't know if it, where it was from, I don't know if it matters. I just knew that it was important. And then I listened to it. And this is the memory that came up into my mind. When I was in second grade, I, (laughs) I have this ridiculously vivid memory of this experience with a substitute teacher in second grade. And I'll explain, I think, why I remember it. Because let's be honest, y'all, there's a bajillion things from our childhood that just get stored away into the files of our mind. Never, literally never to be thought of again, <laughs> you know? Um, and this one was mostly never to be thought of again until, you know, three years ago. <laughs> um, but I have a feeling I can guess why it was it was waiting. It was like dormant until it needed to be tapped, I, I suspect. Um, do y'all have stories like this or memories that just come out of nowhere decades later at the perfect time? That was that was this story. So I was in second grade and we ended up getting a long-term sub because my second grade teacher was out for a period of time. I don't remember if it was because she had a baby. I, I forget why, but this woman was going to be with us for, you know, a while. And so I remember on, on the first day that she came, you know, she was really doing her best to um, act like a teacher teacher, like, like um, you know, not just a stand-in and really connect with us beyond the business as usual substitute teacher stuff. And I remember that in geography that day when she was she was going over we had been learning about the different continents you know second graders (laughs) and she was introducing the continents and when and this particular day we were going to start learning about Africa and she was really excited and she said you know I just got back from Africa and of course every seven-year-old in the room immediately wanted to hear every single thing (laughs) that she did because Africa was about as far removed from Midwest, a small Midwest suburb as you could possibly get. Right. I, and she was thrilled to talk about it. And so the, the subsequent days she brought in all this stuff that she had, you know, gotten while she was in Africa and we talked about it. She had traveled to the Ivory Coast. I, why do I even remember that detail? I, I specifically remember that's where she went because she pointed to it on a map and showed us where it was. And 
we learned, you know, she told us a lot of things and it was, you know, fascinating and we were eating it all up because, you know, I don't think any of us had ever met someone, you know, that had visited there, let alone was from there, you know, and, and then she tells us this story and this is the story that came back into my memory when I was drawing this prickly pear and feeling guilt for it. She said that on one particular tour that she and her tour group took, it was through a small village and they were, it was pretty remote and they were accessing it by a bus on a, like, you know, with a tour guide. And before they left to go onto the tour that day, the tour guide gathered all of their attention on the bus and he said, okay, so today um, all cameras, um, the presence of all cameras and especially the taking pictures with any cameras is um, 100% forbidden. So put them away. We don't even want to see them. Um, and And then the tour guide explained why. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm pulling back into my memory of 1987 here, y'all. So this is generally what I remember her telling us. This particular group or tribe, culture, whatever, um, had really specific beliefs about photography. One of them being that getting your photo taken also took a piece of your spirit with it. And in the past, people who had broken that rule and taken photos um, had it had created like a violent situation. Like that was how serious this tribe felt about this practice. No photos. There, you know, no photos ever. And I remember the class you know, we never really heard anything like this before. And, you know, at first everyone was kind of chuckling, like, you know, silly privileged white kids, probably. Oh, silly Africans, (laughs) you know, they, they think photos take your soul away, you know? (laughs) And I remember our sub was really serious. She didn't laugh back. And she said, you know, she said, I thought it was kind of silly at first too. She said, but then this really cool thing happened. She said, because we couldn't take pictures that entire day. She goes, and you know what's really crazy, you know, kids? (laughs) She said, that day, of all the days I was in Africa, that day is the one that I have the most vivid, beautiful memories of. And she said, I think there's some truth to what these people believe. She said, because when you take a picture, you capture the image of something. But when you can't take a picture, you store away something even better than the image of a memory. You store away the feeling. She goes, and I remember the feelings of that, that place more than any other place I visited. She goes, and it's changed my perspective on taking pictures. What if taking pictures does take away some of the specialness? of a thing. And I, (laughs) I'm sure there was, you know, plenty of seven-year-olds that were like, whatever, (laughs) whatever you're saying. But I know it hit me, you know, seven-year-old Becca 
There was like a part of her that got it. And I know there were other kids in that room that got it too. That that her explanation made sense somehow, even if we were like too young to really deeply, you know, comprehend it. There was part of what she said that totally made sense. And so this this memory comes back. I'm drawing this prickly pear and I'm realizing that what's what I'm doing is I'm recording some of this cactus's essence onto a piece of paper and it feels it in the same way that someone feels when they're getting their picture taken. And I never asked permission. (laughs) Why would I do that? I've never in my life engaged with a prickly pear in a way that would make me consider asking for permission. And I put my pencil down and I asked that fucking cactus (laughs) for permission to finish drawing it. And it said, yeah. And then it said something else. And you can think I'm nuts. It's fine. (laughs) It said, but I don't want you to share my photo. The drawing is fine. Not the photo. And I said, okay. And it was after this experience that I started to think pretty deeply, if I'm being honest, about sharing photos from Big Bend. And I think, uh, and so I wanted to elaborate on this because we live in this era of profound sharing, especially of photo imagery. It is so ubiquitous that it's almost a non-thing, right? Like nobody thinks twice about sharing imagery. It's as seemingly natural as breathing, right? And this experience has had gotten me to thinking, you know, what if it's not as natural as breathing? What if capturing an image and sharing it on a platform with potentially millions of people, billions of pe- people, <laughs> What if that's doing something harmful that we don't totally wrap our heads around yet? What if it's doing something on par with the way that this small tribe in the Ivory Coast felt, you know? And so I started to think about that. And I and it came back up into the forefront of my mind on this trip because Jason and I were planning a day trip into the park. Um, I'm here for a week and a half. It's sort of like my baby baby moon <laughs> before I get really gigantic and can't hike anymore. And and but he came for for four days of it. And we were going to go into the park one day. And so I started hunting online for some good trail information. And I ran across this travel blog that I really loved. It was really well done. And I was reading through the different trails and taking notes. And at the very end of this trail list, there's a section on this guy's travel blog called Secret Trails. And I was like, oh, tell me more, right? And so I click on it and it pulls up this small write-up without any photos to accompany it. And it says, 
basically this. It says there are places in the park that should not be shared. There are places out here in West Texas that very few people have the responsibility to take care of in the way they deserve. And so I'm dedicating this part of my blog to those places. And if you discover one of those places, I'd like to posit this consideration that you not share it publicly on your social media or with friends and family or on a travel blog. He said it should be kept sacred. And maybe one day you'll be swapping beers at one of the local watering holes in West Texas and you'll be chatting with like an old town, an old timey, you know, local and maybe they'll deem you worthy and maybe they'll tell you about one of their secret places. And if that happens, you'll know that the secret place is a good fit for you. Um, he said, because that's how secret places should be shared is, is that way, not publicly and mass on Instagram. And I was reading this at like two in the morning, right? Cause I like, do lots of weird, you know, vacation planning in the middle of the night when I can't sleep. And I, and I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, that is it. That's it. Um, he hit the nail on the head. He hit the nail on the head about something that I hadn't quite been able to articulate. And that's that there's, there are places out here that I've discovered, um, happenstance, you know, and if too many people found out about it or like worst case scenario, some slimy developer got their hands on it and wanted to turn it into a strip mall, I might throw my body down on the ground in front of a steamroller for it. Like I never really understood people that did that. I, at least not really deep down, <laughs> you know, like I understood it intellectually, but not in my heart. And then I came out here for the first time four years ago. And I remember thinking there are places out here that I would throw my body in front of a steamroller for like, like a hundred percent there. There's something so pure about this place that if anyone threatened it, I would, I would risk my life to protect it. It's so weird. I've never in my life experienced anything like that. And the thing that's so fascinating about this story that the substitute teacher told us when we were second graders is that this particular group of people believes strongly that their likeness is that special, that their spirit and their energy is that special, and that mining it for the public, <laughs> branding it for others is the same as, you know, developing the wilderness for a condo. It's like, it's, it's a weird comparison, I know. And yet, I think there's some wisdom around this, especially now, as artists, where we're, on a day to day basis, putting our babies, and when I say babies, I mean, our creative works or ideas, whatever, 
into this public forum, often with thousands and thousands, millions and millions of people. And is that always the best idea? Because I'm certainly not making the case in this podcast that it's always a bad idea. You know, the internet has done wonders with lifting creatives out of of anonymity and into a sphere where their work can serve, you know, many, many more people. And in that regard, sharing our work online, whether it's a painting or a photo or a poem or, or a song, whatever, is so, so powerful and beautiful and important, for sure. But is that always the case? Is that even mostly the case? Is it more likely that putting things in the public sphere like like that should be the exception instead of the rule, right? Instead of constantly flooding our social spaces with the plates of food that we eat and the you know, pictures of us wearing cute clothes in front of pastel colored murals and, you know, all the things that we see, I could go down the list, (laughs) all the things that we see on our social media accounts, you know, is that, is there something that happens to the sacredness, not just of us, (laughs) but the stuff that we're representing? I was thinking about, (laughs) I was like thinking about this, like before I recorded it and, (laughs) and I was like, okay, what's a good example of this? Because I feel like it's still a little abstract, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if some of you are feeling that way, but I know as I was contemplating talking about this, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, the story, the story about the prickly pear helps, but what what do I, what does Borelli even mean when she says that the sacredness of an object is lost? Like, is it overkill to say that someone's spirit or an object's spirit is harmed by a photo? Like, are we being a little dramatic, you know? And I thought of an example that I think does maybe not the best job, But I think it's such a common example that everyone's going to get it (laughs) when I share it. So this is the example I thought of. Um, Before I worked for myself full-time as an illustrator um, in between grad school and now, I took a job waiting tables at kind of this um, fine dining, casual fine dining restaurant in South Austin. Um, It's no longer open. It's really sad. It closed a few years ago. It was such a special restaurant. I loved working there. And the thing that was really neat about this restaurant was that it was full of natural light because it was the corner of a building and it was floored like practically floor to ceiling glass windows on two of the four walls. And during the day, we would have this lull between lunch and dinner where we would be transitioning service. There would be like almost nobody eating between two and five, you know, and And so we would have like free time. We would be like polishing things and chatting or whatever. And because we had more free time, there was also more cognizance of our surroundings. And and one of the things that was really fascinating to watch is that the people out on this street, 
this was in like one of those mixed use complexes, right? So there was like lots of little stores and a movie theater and all kinds of stuff right outside the restaurant. And we would become more cognizant of what was happening out there. And the thing that was really funny was that the people out there would oftentimes be relatively alone in the middle of the day. Like it wasn't a busy time of day out there between two and five. And sometimes we would catch people doing things that were hysterical and they would have no idea that they had an audience inside the restaurant because they couldn't really see inside the windows in the same way we could see out. And I'll never forget this one day, all the servers just lined up along the windows to just die laughing at this you know, sweet girl, she's probably, I mean, she couldn't have been a day older than 19, like definitely out of high school, but certainly not old enough to drink. (laughs) And like right across the street from the restaurant was this little ice cream parlor. And she was with a guy, they had gotten ice cream cones and they were leaving the ice cream parlor and walking past the restaurant. And he immediately kind of like leaves her because she pulls out her phone and and starts taking, I mean, I don't know. It couldn't have been less than 30 photos of her trying to get the perfect ice cream lick photo with the background of this beautiful sort of Austin, funky outdoor area that we were all like in. And she wasn't, you know, getting it, right? We all, anyone listening to this, I'm sure has had some version of this experience. Like I, if it, if it comes across as I'm judging her, I hope it, I hope it's not too much because I've done this too, right? Where you're taking a selfie or maybe not even a selfie. Maybe it's something that you've created or whatever. And you can't, you want it to be perfect. You want it to look the highest version of itself as you possibly can. And so you're just photo after photo after photo. And so this is what she was doing, but with her face, like she was trying to get her hair to lay just right. And she kept flipping it and like puckering her lips. It was, and she didn't know anyone was looking at her. Like, I think if she had known people were watching her, she wouldn't have been doing half of this stuff. And so it was really like, it almost felt like dangerous to be watching this incredibly awkward, uncomfortable thing happening. <laughs> and she had no idea. And we're just all laughing our asses off, which, you know, I guess does sound pretty judgmental. But I think in a lot of ways we were laughing because we got it. Like all of us have been there in, you know, one lower moment or another. <laughs> and yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of this topic in this podcast episode. And I was thinking, you know, I don't (laughs) like just a few generations ago, homemade, this is a homemade ice cream parlor, soft serve, like exotic, they do all the exotic flavors, right? Like blueberry, goat cheese, fig and all that stuff. Like just a few decades ago, that would have been considered a freaking miracle, right? Like, like, and, and, and then like, and so I was like thinking about that. I was thinking about what would seven-year-old Becca do with that kind of ice cream? And I immediately thought of how blasphemous seven-year-old Becca would have thought to have spent, you know, all of this time taking photos of the ice cream while it's melting down the hand, right? Like th- 
the whole point of something so glorious is to savor it (laughs) and be in the moment, you know? And an ice cream of this caliber ceases to be a miracle anymore when it becomes fodder for branding online. Um, like I, I, maybe she enjoyed the ice cream. Maybe after the photo shoot, the self-imposed photo shoot was done, maybe she went into a quiet space and like really slowly ate that thing and enjoyed every single bit of it. Maybe, but my guess is probably not, right? Because the purpose of the ice cream was, was an image, not, not the experience. And I feel like this is sort of a modern day example of what the substitute teacher was trying to tell us. When you make something about a photo, you're focusing on the the surface of that thing, the image of that thing. And as a culture, we're really still very seduced by surface. It's why the Kardashians are a thing. And I, if it, if it makes, like, there's so much nuance to this. Like, so I, I almost even hesitate using a specific example like the Kardashians because it makes it sound like I don't like them or have a problem with them. That's too simplistic. I think they're fascinating. <laughs> like, they're fascinating. They're, there's so much to them. And the fact that we exist in a, a space and time where... A family like that can exist and be, you know, billionaires or multimillionaires or I don't even know is bananas to me and not all in bad ways or good ways. It's just, it's just bizarre. <laughs> so I want to, like, I feel like that's important to say, but I also think it's really important to, to acknowledge that we, that that's a perfect example of surface, right? We're so enraptured with surface that a photo of Chloe wearing almost nothing is going to engage hundreds and hundreds of times the attention as, you know, someone working to solve a water crisis in a small village somewhere, right? Like I'm just pulling that out of my butt, you know what I, but like we all know the comparison that our culture is so enraptured by surface and that social media in some ways has, has become the epitome of that. Like that we now are truly focusing on surface most of our time online. And what does that mean for you as a maker when the most of the people on your social media are engaging with you in that surface way. How does that affect what you make? How does that water down what you put out there? Right? Because whether, you know, some, there's plenty of people that would argue with me on this, but I I stand firmly in this belief that the most beautiful, highly curated ice cream licking photo that gets millions of likes on Instagram is shallow in comparison to sitting and deeply experiencing that freaking ice cream. And this, as this idea as an artist 
just enraptures me at the moment because I, I've noticed that I've gotten wrapped up in this idea that if I post something that really means a lot to me, that I'm vulnerable in, that I've really bared my heart and soul in. And, and oftentimes, some of the most meaningful things that I've made get almost no interaction on social media. And it's the equivalent of taking someone's picture without their permission. Y- you feel a little bit violated. Like, I made this thing for you, to serve you. And you like my Ikea furniture more. If y'all follow me on Instagram, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Um, A few weeks ago, I was purging a bunch of studio stuff because Lemon House closed in December and I moved my operation back home, which is smaller and I need to get rid of a bunch of things. And so one of the things I decided to get rid of was this Ikea flat file that I had made. Um, It was like an Ikea hack. And it is, it became by far like blowing anything else I've posted out of the water. It was by far the most popular thing I've ever posted. And it's because it was shared so many times. And I'm sure it's because, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not trying to make some deep philosophical angry argument here. Um, I think it was very simple. I think a lot of people were like, oh, I know an artist who would benefit from this. Let me share it, right? And so it got shared over and over and over again. And so thousands of people ended up seeing this Instagram story of mine where usually it's like two to 300 people see an Instagram story of mine. And so in that regard, it was very simple and not deep at all. And it shows that most of people's interaction on social media is consumerist, right? Like it's not to engage with deep artistic creative ideas per se. And I'm guilty of this too. I'm a hundred percent guilty of this too. It is so much easier for me to use social media as, as a consumer to buy stuff. And that's absolutely by design. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all of those platforms, they, their customers are their advertisers. And so they don't, like the whole platform is not set up for you as an artist. It's not set up for you to share deep, profound, you know, vulnerable creations and have them interacted with um, in a meaningful way. It's meant to um, buy and sell shit. And it may not be necessarily just goods. It may be buy and sell images. You know, that's why an image of a beautiful woman in a bathing suit gets traded so much more on Instagram than, you know, something that's an idea, you know, something that's not as visual and easily commodified. Um, And I, and so so I'm okay. So I'm like contemplating this out here. I'm like thinking about secret places and thinking about, you know, this place. And I, you know, I post usually once or twice when I'm out here on social media, but I have very intentionally not posted 
many of the photos I take out here. And if I do, it's of popular trails that I know people will find regardless of if I share them or not. Um, and I was driving on the way back to the Airbnb this afternoon from Marfa. And I was going through the 30 mile stretch between Marfa and Alpine through the Chihuahuan Desert, which is brown and white straw-like grass for as far as the eye can see on both sides with you know framed by mountains in the distance most people would look at it and think Ugh, you know and for me it's just one of the most beautiful magical things I've ever seen because the these expanses of land have been truly untouched like there's patches of land that have truly been untouched for thousands of years even by the owners of the land because all the land out here is privately owned but you know, some of these properties are so big that, you know, the, the owners don't touch any of it. It's like wild. And I was thinking to myself, as I was driving through this area, I was thinking, I love that, you know, most people aren't going to even see this in their lifetimes. Like, I love that this part of the country is so undesirable in some ways that you know people won't even visit (laughs) I love that because there's something about the energy that hasn't been taken away you know like like this substitute teacher was trying to tell us there's something about the land out here that is it's pure in a way that really defies language and like this is where I started to wonder like am I should I make a podcast about this which is a primary primarily a a word-based medium like I don't have the words to explain to you what I mean but I think I'm certain as artists all of you know or are grokking what I'm getting at here that there's some there's a feeling you get when you go to a place that almost no one else has been that is magic and it's a, it's a feeling that you won't get at a tourist spot. Um, I read a book years ago about Ayers Rock in Australia. And it's pretty tragic. Like the Aboriginal people used to claim that as a sacred site. And they don't anymore. Because it's the, the energy, the sacred energy of that space. Um, they have candidly said is gone from the constant onslaught of tourists like for a long time they were having tourists trying to climb this thing um it's like the perfect example of not getting it right it's the perfect example of seeing the surface not the energy right like oh i'm gonna climb this thing instead of like whoa magic is here you know it's the perfect example of why some people aren't supposed to see spaces And this leads me to the reason for doing this podcast episode and kind of rambling, you know, I suspect a little bit back and forth. Maybe some of you are like, when is she going to get to the point? (laughs) Is I think there's a lot of people that probably shouldn't see some of your work. And that's not to say that you shouldn't share your work as far and as wide as you feel necessary. But some things have to be secret, just like that travel blogger said. Some things 
are only going to be appreciated by a very small number. And I've had artistic experiences out here that I won't share probably with anybody. I've drawn things out here that I may never let anyone see. Um, And maybe that'll change. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm open to it. I would never, I mean, even, you know, a decade ago, I would have thought this idea was ridiculous. Like, what's the point of making something if you're not going to share it? (laughs) Like, that's for me. Um, Serving other people with the stuff that I make is like one of the primary points. (laughs) And then, and then I came out here four years ago and I realized, oh man, what about the service to me? You know, if I take a photo of a space out here that has healed my soul, just like sitting in it, is that photo even remotely going to capture that for you? Right? And then am I just doing this tremendous disservice? Not only to you, the viewer of this photo, but also to the space that has given me so much. And I've mined it for its image and shared it with thousands of people who don't get it, who don't get the gift. You know, that to me is something worth contemplating as artists right now. What stuff do you make that no one should see you know and what in so protecting that work what parts of you do you get to also protect what parts of you get to grow and thrive because they're not being exposed to this massive commodification of publicity you know um One of my favorite, I'll I'll wrap up the episode with this. One of my favorite quotes right now, like I I cycle through favorites (laughs) um, that I've been thinking about banging around in my brain a lot lately is from Bo Burnham. If you've never heard of him, he was a, he was a self-made YouTube star. He started making funny little videos um, singing songs that he created and playing the piano in his bedroom when he was a teenager back in the, the 2000s. And he went viral. People loved him. He had a, a really popular YouTube channel. And it led to doing sketch comedy and doing tours and getting lots of attention. He recently produced a re- an award-winning movie, um, about being an eighth grader. Oh, what's the name of it? I can't think of the name of it. Look it up. It's a wonderful movie. Um, And he did a couple of specials before he completely went off the grid. Like he hasn't done anything publicly in like five years. And the last I read, which I think this is so cool. The last I read is that he's employed with Sesame Street, (laughs) writing for them and doing puppet stuff. I just think that's freaking so him. If you, if you know him or if you check out him after this podcast episode, you'll see it's like, he's the perfect person to work on Sesame Street. But I was bummed at first, you know, he he basically publicly said about five years ago, I'm kind of done. I don't, 
I don't think I'm going to do anything publicly again. If Definitely not for a long time. And then he said something, and, and this is a quote that I just have in my my mind all the time now. He said, if you can live life without an audience, you should do it. And uh, yeah, I would expand upon that and say, you know, maybe as as makers, you know, maybe that's not realistic right now. Maybe that's not even remotely something you want to do right now. As a maker, being online is important. And I get that. I'm with you right I'm with you right there. But I would also say, you know, as an artist, is there some things that you can do without an audience? And if so, you should. Like I'm realizing that and my life is changing for the better. Um, what are the parts of you that you will do without anyone knowing? And in some ways, that's radical. Banksy said this. Banksy, and I'm paraphrasing, you, you can look up the exact wording, but he said, in an age and an era where everything is shared and everything is public, being private is radical. And it starts to feel radical. I'll tell you what, like coming out here and doing things that no one will ever know about, it feels special. It feels delicious. It feels like I'm doing something naughty. Like naughty is such a weird word to use, but you know what I mean? Like I feel like I'm getting away with something and I love that. And that's pretty wild, y'all. And I don't even mean wild in just a good way or a bad way, but it's wild that we live in an era where being private is radical. And as artists, I think this is really a really vital time to think about this because I realized that I just don't want to wake up one day, 20 years from now, a shell of, of me. Like, I don't want to wake up a Kardashian and I, (laughs) and some people that's their aspiration and that's awesome. Like that's, everyone's different, right? But I don't want to be a billionaire or a multimillionaire that's sold every aspect of themselves. Like, have you ever, like, really tapped in to the feeling of those women? None of them feel particularly joyful at all. <laughs> um, not in the way that I'm used to. Like, like you know, in a I'm rich kind of way, sure. I mean, totally. <laughs> Like it's not, life's not too bad for them um, in that regard, you know, but I, I didn't want to have success in my art and lose the stuff that matters most. And I started to realize pretty quickly that this is a question that even a few years ago, wasn't nearly as problematic right? Like we're quickly having to start grappling with some of these questions. And I wanted to talk about it on this podcast because it's been like just in the past year that I've really started grappling with this question. And I wish that I had started thinking about it years ago. Um, so I hope, you know, at the very least, I hope that gives people listening permission to get off of the sharing train 
you know, a little bit, just a little bit. Um, because right now the sharing train has become out of control. Like if you, if you look up like influencers on social media, or if you look up Instagram's recommendations for posting, their posting recommendations, they're insane. Like 10 to 12 things a day, 10 to 12 bits of media a day. Um, and, and if you do these things, you will have numbers and you will have engagement and you will have a following and presumably although I'm not totally convinced this is true presumably you'll also be making lots of money right but what are you losing what are you losing that's so much richer than an income by living that way you know like I I think about this prickly pear cactus and I think about this substitute teacher and I think about how often we're mining our world for likes you know and I just can't expose my art to that anymore you know and and far be, out, far be it for me to even remotely sound like I'm on a, a platform here, right? I used to post all the time. I still post pretty regularly on Instagram, but I post so much less now than I used to and it feels awesome. So I'm just talking about shifts that work for you, right? Like it, this, is, this is no judgment on anyone's in, interaction with the world and what they make, you know? If you're the type of person that wants to make videos of every single second of your studio day, great. Like, uh, more power to you. I really believe you're supposed to do that. You wouldn't have the urge to do it if you weren't supposed to do it. And if you ever get to a point where you're putting your most beautiful stuff online and it's falling into the, the, to the you know, bowels of social media anonymity because people don't appreciate it or get it um then you have this random chick in a podcast giving you permission to say fuck it most of this stuff you don't get to see anymore you you're not worthy of this stuff that i've made and this stuff is just for me and a select few people and I can't say the ways that that might change your life, but I can tell you that it has absolutely made me a happier, more creative, um, in-tune artist. Some of my best work came after the shift in perspective for me. And I hope that maybe it can help you too. So anyway, speaking of being off of social media... I have started the Heart School Network, which I've talked about a little bit on past podcast episodes for this exact reason. We just hit 100, 100 members. I love it. It's like, what is 100? 100 is like peas and carrots in social media land, right? And the thing about the Heart School is that it's 100 people that really love intuitive styles of art making and talking deeply about art making and ideas and so it's like the best of the best (laughs) um it's also a place where I share um 
class information and people can share their art that they're working on and talk to other community members without all the ads and trolling and algorithms inter- intervening with your you know psychology and everything. So if that sounds interesting to you, I will leave a link in the show notes as well as it's on my website, beccajburley.com or just my last name, B-O-R-R-E-L dot L-I. Um, and see if it's for you. It's totally free to sign up. You can unsubscribe at any time. And it's a, it's a really neat social media platform without all of the crap, you know? And I know when I post something that I've made there that people will never let it fall into the bowels of social media anonymity because they're going to get it. It's the types of people that I want to see my stuff. And maybe it can be that for you too. Um, thank y'all. I don't know when the next one of these will be, but I'm certain it will be good when it time, when the time comes and until next time, peace.